There is nothing you need to bring with you to be welcome here. No right beliefs or proof of citizenship. No eternal optimism or clarity of conviction. No boundless courage or endless expertise. You do not need to know what brought you here or how you will solve that problem you are turning over and over in your mind. Your bills do not need to be paid and your checkbook can be a mess. Your children may have been up half the night. Your hearing aids may not be working and your needs may be creaking. You do not need to be already perfect or even halfway to belong in this circle where grace meets us where we are but does not leave us as it found us, where love resides in each of us, yet is somehow more than all, where life still pulses and rages and heals and transforms, creating us and this day anew once again. <clears throat> Come, let us worship together. of fire represents passion, veracity, authenticity, vitality. If the chalice is the supporting structure of Unitarian Universalism, then we are the flame. We are the flame fanned strong by our passion for freedom, our yearning for truth-telling, our daring to be authentic with one another, and the vitality we sustain in our meeting together. In all of this, there is love. Our reading this morning is to ask is to give by Jeffrey A. Lockwood. A voice screeched gate assignments through a nerve-jangling public address system. Even if the announcements had been in English, I doubt that I'd have been able to make sense of them. But whatever was being broadcast to the cavernous waiting area of the Moscow airport prompted mobs of people to head toward the buses that shuttled passengers to the planes. 
I grew panicky as I realized that there was no chance of figuring out which announcement concerned my flight. Staring desperately at my boarding pass, I realized that all I had to do was find a Russian with a matching flight number and follow him. To my right was a morose old fellow whose pass was tucked into the pocket of his threadpare suit coat. To my left was Salvation. A pretty teenager had her boarding pass stuck in the book she was reading, and the first two digits of her flight number were the same as mine. Hoping to see the numbers hidden by the edge of the page, I carefully leaned over. Sensing my movement, she turned to look at me. I pointed, hopefully, at my boarding pass and then at hers. To my relief, she immediately understood. But we attracted the attention of her parents and younger brother. When she explained my situation, her mother smiled warmly and launched into what I took to be an offer of help. I nodded, correctly guessing that I had been temporarily adopted. When our flight was announced, the mother leapt to her feet and grasped me by the elbow. She ushered me toward the gate, shouting directions to the others as the boy grabbed my backpack and the girl and her father hauled the rest of the luggage. The mother pushed through the crowd, returning scowls with her own glare and dragging me along until we boarded the bus. Once at the plane, I thanked her profusely using one of the few Russian words I knew. She seemed to thank me in return, but why would she be grateful? One of the great blessings of travel is to be put in a position of asking help from others, to, to be genuinely needful of strangers. Our illusion of self-reliance evaporates as the unexpected and the unfamiliar verge into vulnerability. We offer the gift of authentic need, the opportunity for deep trust. We express to, one, one, to another person the most humanizing cross-cultural phrase, please help me. In 2013, I was honored to be selected by my seminary to receive a scholarship to travel to Suzuka, Japan in rural Mie Prefecture, about an hour south of Kyoto, where I studied for three weeks at Tsubaki Grand Shrine, a 2,000-year-old shrine that's one of the main attractions for pilgrims who flock there for the picturesque surroundings and deep connection in nature. I spent my time there living as a priest in training, learning about their religion, absorbing everything around me. Needless to say, it was a life-altering experience and I learned much during my time there. But there was something else I wanted to do. You see, the shrine was at the base of the Suzuka mountain range with a secondary shrine even located along the ascent. Now, you may have realized at this point of my time with you that I love the outdoors. And it was like those mountains were calling my name. The priests were hesitant to let me go, but I assured them that I had experience hiking even through mountains. At last, they relented, and so one Wednesday morning, after our daily chanting and prayers, I started up the path 
to the top of the Suzuka mountain range. Now, the path itself wasn't terribly difficult and was actually a pretty lively hike through some countryside. And I soon found myself perched on what felt like the top of the world. And the view from the top was spectacular. I found myself sitting on a log, deep in meditation, the cool wind upon my face. I was utterly transfixed by the moment, concentrating on a beagle, beetle crawling by. I sat there for what felt like hours, but was probably not long. And at last, I decided I wanted to come back to hell. The sun would be setting before I knew it. And I sure didn't want to miss dinner. I stood up in the center of the clearing and looked around. There were four separate paths on all sides of me, each leading in a different direction. That's when it hit me. I had meditated too well. So well that I had forgotten which of these paths I came up. So I took my best guess at a path that I hope would take me back the way I had started. And things seemed to be going well, at least I thought. And I started going down. But my luck suddenly took a turn for even worse when I suddenly realized I was going up again. This couldn't be right. So I backtracked and tried another path. But the sun was setting quickly. And things seemed hopeless. And even worse, all the signage on the mountain was in Japanese kanji script. Which I can't read. So there is no way to tell where I was going. I knew I didn't want to be on the mountain after dark. So I decided the smartest thing to do was to get myself down at the first opportunity and figure things out from there. Down below me, I saw a small gravel road that I would soon find out led to an electrical substation. So I figured there had to be a road down for trucks to get up, right? Sure enough, after about a five minute walk, I found myself in a residential neighborhood and noticed two homeowners chatting next to each other in their backyard. I must have been quite the sight. A white person in a small rural Japanese town without very many white people, dirty from the hike, my leg bleeding from pricking myself on a bush. I spoke very little Japanese but wanted to find a way to communicate with the woman. So I somehow got across to her that I had come from the mountain and had something to do with Tsubaki Shrine. She put her finger up, telling me to wait a moment. I expected her to come back with a phone so I could call the shrine and find out where I was. Instead, she pulled her truck out of the garage and motioned for me to get in. It turned out I had come off the other side of the mountain 
And I was only five minutes from the shrine. But without a cell phone with working internet, I never would have known that. Back at the shrine, the priests had quite a laugh about my adventures that day, and I have it on good authority. I'm now a cautionary tale to other white folks who would dare take on the mountain. But what I learned that day was that sometimes you have to trust other people and the universe to find a way out of sticky situations. There are times we all need one another. We won't make it otherwise. Imagine if I just continued wandering on top of the mountain and not had the audacity to come down and ask for help from a stranger. I could have gotten hopelessly lost up there. Maybe you all would have heard stories about the UU seminarian who never came down. <laughs> but the fact was, I was willing to admit I needed help. And that meant that I was able to rely on the kindness of strangers. Just as Jeffrey Lockwood depended on the kindness of a Russian family to ensure he'd be able to catch his flight in a country where he didn't read the script, I needed someone to point me back to the shrine. We both realized the power and being willing to open ourselves up to others to really risk how others will respond. To risk that this woman would call the police and say that there is a random white guy who is bleeding in her backyard. What we both found out is that no matter the country or culture, most people have a penchant for being there for others when they need it. And that's what happens so often in life. We feel like we're on top of the world, like no one and nothing can touch us. Then we get lost. We get knocked down and find ourselves in some stranger's rice paddy. Maybe someone we love dies or we lose our jobs or a choice we make comes back and bites us. Many times, I felt myself encapsulated in this feeling. And after all, I told the priests, I know what I'm doing, don't I? How can I accept the help of a stranger after I insisted so loudly I could handle myself? Psychologist and researcher Brene Brown would say that we've succumbed to shame the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. In other words, at times when we could seek out others, we withdraw from the world again, perhaps feeling like we don't deserve them or scared they will hurt us, continuing to wander on that mountaintop. Brown says shame is the most powerful master emotion we're so afraid of how we will measure up to others that we develop shame around it, learning to not show our true selves for fear of being rejected. Shame pervades our culture, and it doesn't happen in a vacuum. We're so afraid to show our true selves, to ask for help, 
that we hide the beauty within. Many of us have good reason to fear. Oftentimes, we've tried to be authentic and instead been rejected. We've been rejected for our sexuality or gender identity or race, told we need to lose weight to be loved, or made fun of for our body type, made to feel like nothing. We, like nothing we do is right, and that we're just useless, unintelligent, not good enough, unworthy of love. That hurts, and it teaches us that we need to hide who we really are, conform societal expectations, not ask for help, so others won't reject us. We all suffer from shame at one time or another in our culture, Brown believes. So many of us do it silently, and it brings drastic consequences. When we don't deal with shame in a constructive manner, Brown says that the result is that it comes out against our will in the form of depression, grief, anxiety, eating disorders, addiction, and even violence. It's so powerful because shame disconnects us when we're so desperately seeking connection. But in the words of Brown, we don't have to do it all alone. We were never meant to. The key for Brown is vulnerability, which she defines, she defines as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. We have to be willing to show up and be who we are. We have to be willing to be seen because we know we are sparkling stars on top of that mountain, even if we can't traverse it by ourselves, even if we need to hold another's hand on occasion and have the courage to wander into a rice paddy in a strange land. It's not about becoming perfect, but instead admitting that we aren't perfect. Life will never be a fairy tale with no struggle, and that's okay. We are okay, even when we feel our most not okay. The very act of being vulnerable changes us, makes us feel a little braver every time we are. Vulnerability breeds courage. As in my story in Japan and Jeffrey Lockwood's story of the Russian family, there are so many people out there ready to accept us and help us with open arms. When we learn to show up for who we are, we learn it is safe to be authentic. And though Brown doesn't believe shame ever completely disappears, it does lose its sting. Willingness to show up changes us. It makes us a little braver every time. Where are the places you need to be vulnerable? What is your getting lost in the mountain story where you could use some help and encouragement? What would it look like if you opened yourself up to the possibility of being loved just the way you are? Now, I can already hear the objection that some of you are thinking, what if I'm vulnerable and someone hurts me? Well, yes, 
That is always a risk in showing up as our true selves. I won't deny it. It's inevitable in our culture that someone will hurt us and use our vulnerability against us. But Brown thinks it's an essential part of vulnerability, that it wouldn't be vulnerability if it was all rainbows and puppy dogs and cotton candy. But nevertheless, nevertheless, vulnerability is something we still need because we need to be brave. We need to have courage. And courage is about vulnerability, to be brave even in the face of our fear to overcome our shame and dare to save the world that we are perfect in our imperfection. We will eventually get hurt, whether we're vulnerable or not. But maybe the key is to find safe places where we can be brave people, where we can practice being vulnerable. I hope that this congregation is once in such place, and I truly want to be one such person you can be infinitely vulnerable with. Because that is one way Brown believes we show resiliency in the face of shame, by having these people who are willing to get their truck out of the garage and take you back to where you need to be. So find the places where you can be vulnerable Cultivate those until you feel brave enough to show your true self to the world and come down off that mountain. We've all been wondering so long, lost, unsure how to get back home, not sure which way is even up or down. Isn't it time to come down and trust that at the base of our mountain of life, There are people willing to embrace us for who we are, who will make sure we don't miss our flight, who will drive us back to our shrines that we need to be at, who will make sure we have dinner at night, and who will affirm us for the beautiful people we are. Vulnerability breeds courage and allows us to be our true selves. And that is the most precious gift we can give to the world, just to show up as the unique people we are, who will never be seen again in the history of this universe, to give our unique gifts, the ones that we have to offer, and make the world a better place, one person at a time. So my challenge for you today from the great philosopher Michael Jackson. (laughs) I'm starting with the man in the mirror. May it be so. You are in the story of the world. You are the world coming to know itself. May you trust that all you will ever say or do belongs in the story of the world. Go in peace.